This is the Mark Stucheski Podcast. On this episode of the show, we're going back in the archives, back to October 15th, 2019, where I had the pleasure of talking to Frank King. Frank King is a suicide prevention speaker and trainer and was a writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years. Depression and suicide run in his family. He's thought about killing himself more times than he can count, and he's fought a lifetime battle with major depressive disorder and chronic suicidality turning that long, dark journey of the soul into five TEDx talks and sharing his life-saving insights on mental health awareness with associations, corporations, and colleagues. He uses his life lessons to start the conversation, giving people permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences surrounding depression and suicide. And by doing it, by coming out, as it were, and standing in his truth and doing it with humor. He believes that where there is humor, there is hope. Where there is laughter, there is life. Nobody dies laughing. The right person at the right time with the right information can save a life. This conversation is so important. You'll get a lot out of it. So here's my conversation from the archives with Frank King from October 15th, 2019. Enjoy. Frank, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Now, I got to let the listener know ahead of time that you are probably the most boring person I know of. You have no sense of humor, which is, I just read the intro a few minutes ago before we started the show. That's not true. You are a funny guy. You're not just a mushroom. You're a fun guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm 150 pounds of, well, that's like breathing ether. You wake up face down in the pool of your own saliva over and over and over again. I'm just that boring. I'm <laughs> Yeah, this is going to be a conversation, uh, folks. We don't, I don't know where it's going to go, so I'm a little scared, uh, but we are going to keep it clean, and we're going to keep it friendly. But what's really interesting about Frank, uh, the reason why he's on the show, is I get these guests who really pique my interest. Now, Frank is a – well, why don't you tell them how you bill yourself when you are pitching yourself to other businesses and corporations? How do you pitch yourself? I am the mental health comedian – I speak on depression, suicide, signs, symptoms, and solutions. And the title of my keynote, uh, one of my keynotes, my main keynote, is um, Life in the Exit Row, Starting the Conversation on Suicide. Hmm. Now, most people that I've known, that I've come across in my 54 years on this planet, would not talk about comedy and suicide and mental health in the same conversation. <laughs> so I've got to ask you, how did you one day decided, hey, you know, I think these three things go together? Well, it was probably 2010, April, height of the recession. My business had dropped off 80%. My wife and I had lost everything we worked for for 25 years in Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And I came close enough to dying by suicide that I could tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. I... I had always wanted to not only make a living, you know, speaking, doing stand-up, and so forth. I wanted to make a difference. I could never figure out what I had to teach anybody. And then after I came so close and thought about my family history, we have something in my family called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great-aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I'll spare you the details. But if you go to franktedtalk.com, my first ted talk will pop up and that's where i came out for the first time in my life at age 52 as a person who lives with depression thoughts of suicide so 
I began, and I used that TEDx, that first one at, at age 52 in 2014, as my rebranding from a funny speaker to a speaker who was funny. So there are no jokes. There's nothing funny, joke, joke funny about depression and suicide. However, funny things do happen, real, real life things. Uh, when I do my keynote, I say, look, I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger, which gets a nervous laugh. <laughs> and then I say a friend of mine came up to me about a month ago after my keynote. He'd never heard me say that out loud before. And he said, and I quote, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? And I said, hey, man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? <laughs> so that's where the funny is in the subject. And it's a lot easier to, to digest 45 minutes, 60 minutes of talk about depression and suicide if you give them a little comic relief along the way based on my what they call lived experience I, because I have two mental illnesses major depressive disorder and something a little more rare called chronic suicidality or chronic suicidal ideation meaning for me and people in my tribe the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small and I tell the audience when I say small for example a couple of years ago my car broke down I had three thoughts unbidden. I could get it fixed, I could buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. Mm. That's chronic suicidality. And the, the thing about saying that out loud is almost every time I speak, including last week, somebody comes up, sometimes more than one somebody, who has a similar thought pattern. They, they believe they were, well, they didn't know it had a name. They thought they were some kind of freak, and they believed they were utterly alone. And when I, when I say that out loud, they come up and some have been crying so hard they couldn't speak once they realized they were, in fact, not alone. So that's part of the ROI for me is, is, is identifying what they have for those people who thought they were just, you know, a freak of nature. Mm -hmm. and, and hopefully I've steered them far enough off the path towards suicide. They'll live a normal length of life, which, by the way, um, I, I realized, uh, I think it was January of this year, I was standing outside of a building at the University of Montana Billings, starting to snow, it's dusk, there's a river nearby. And I'm thinking about all the people who came up to me after, you know, each and every talk I gave and how I had, you know, I had let them know they had a name and they're not a freak. There are lots of us out there and and how relieved they seem to feel. And I thought, you know what? I am I'm George Bailey in the movie It's a Wonderful Life. I've been shown, perhaps by the angel who, who, who kept me from pulling the trigger that morning, what these people's lives would be like if I weren't there to speak and to let them know they're not alone. You know, sort of like George Bailey, the angel shows them what those people's lives would be like if he hadn't been born. Which led me to my next thought, which is I can't kill myself because if I did, I would take all those people with me. So wow. a friend of mine said, you couldn't live with it. I said, no, I couldn't die with that. That's, That's where a fascinating I am. Story. Well, let's let's go back a little bit. That you were actually a writer for the Tonight Show for twenty years, and many of my listeners have grown up with the Tonight Show. I don't really like the Jimmy Fallon Tonight Show. I think it's too far to the left. Uh, this is not a political show. I really like Jay Leno. I like Jimmy Carson, uh, Johnny Carson, Jimmy Carson. Where did I get that from? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, when you were a writer for the Tonight Show, who was the host? Well, uh, what happened was in the very in the beginning. Jay had just been, this is the late 80s, Jay had just been selected as the permanent guest host. And Johnny was very mercurial. So he would say on spur of the moment on a Friday night, I'm taking next week off, which meant Monday night was Best of Carson, a rerun. 
That meant Jay Leno had four nights to work the following week, 18 jokes per monologue. So he was in desperate need of jokes. And so what happened was he developed this cadre of what they called facts writers, comics, working comics, who were tasked with coming up with jokes for Jay's monologue. And I pumped in a dozen, two dozen jokes a day, topical jokes. And then I'd get one or two in the monologue every week. And then when Jay took over the show, they kept on a number of us sort of facts writers, right on spec guys. And I was with him until he, you know, he left the show. Wow. Now you actually got to meet him. I take it several times. Nice guy. Uh, and when he left the show, I asked him, would he make a little video for me? Kind of a testimonial for my corporate speaking business. And he said, no, nah, you know, I don't really, uh, NBC doesn't really want me to do any uh, videos. I tell you what I do. If you uh, get a chance maybe to do another morning radio show, I did a morning radio show in the mid-90s. I got hired. Uh, and, you know, like it's between you and one other guy and a phone call from me would push him over the top for you. Call Helga, give her the number, the name. I'll call, see if I can't. Strong on the guy and to give me the job. <laughs> so I've been sitting on that favor for quite some time. I'm waiting for an opportunity to, <laughs> to play that card. Now, is it? But Jay Leno was a comedian. So I, I try to back up a little bit here. Try to explain to me in the audience why would a comedian host need to have joke writers? Well, he had he had when he took the show over for real full time. He had a staff of facts writers in house. Uh, but he kept some of us on the, you know, the facts writers, the guy writing under uh, as a contractor, uh, because he was looking for the best jokes, you know, the best jokes he could find for the monologue. And he, he's a comedian, but to write 18 jokes a day for your monologue ah, okay. would take a goodly number of hours. Uh, <laughs> to, uh, I mean, some of them he wrote himself, but the majority of them, somebody else wrote. It's the same with Dennis Miller when he had his show, same with Letterman. You know, they didn't have time with all their other responsibilities to to write the monologue. I miss guest host. I Johnny Carson had it with you know as you mentioned Jay Leno and uh, Gary Chandler. Chandler is that the other one of the other ones? Chandling, Gary Chandling, yeah. yeah. But now they don't do it. So when Jimmy takes time off, it's just reruns. And I'm is that an NBC thing that they decided to get away uh, go away from the guest host? Do you know? Hey. You, listening to the Mark Stuchowski Podcast, thank you so much for doing so. I really appreciate it. But are you a Mark Stuchowski insider yet? This is my free email newsletter, and you can sign up right now by going to MrProductivity.com. M-I-S-T-E-R, MrProductivity.com. I'm not sure why they did that. I always enjoyed uh, Joan Rivers, Gary Shandling, uh, another, uh, somebody else guest host that I can't recall exactly who... Uh, but yeah, I, I enjoyed that format. It was nice, you know, just change of pace. But you know, they didn't call me and go, "Hey, Frank, you think we should do away with the guest host?" <laughs> they didn't call me either. So uh, it's interesting because back in the '80s, we had to watch it live. Now we just record it on our DVRs and we watch it the next day without the commercials. Um, because if you ever watch the entire Tonight Show. After, like, the first 30 minutes, there's a load of commercials. I mean, tons of commercials. They're all at the back 30 minutes, which I found very interesting. I also miss headlines. Jay Leno did this bit called Headlines. That was hysterical, oh, yeah. but they don't do that anymore. So I, I kind of miss that. Well, and he didn't, he didn't find those either. There's a service that finds those funny headlines. Oh. <laughs> yep. 
You're shattering all our illusions, Frank. I'm sorry, man. Yeah, and well, nothing, nothing on television, nothing on radio is real. I'll just say that right. The reality shows, not really reality. <laughs> I remember when I was in radio broadcasting. I was a radio DJ back when we played records. Now. The younger people in their audience go Google records, not Olympic records. I mean, the disc. I guess they're coming back into a fashion now. But I remember that I was shattered when Casey Case's The American Top 40 was not live. It came on records. And I know this because one day I was doing the, the American Top 40 and I had, you know, they had four discs, uh, disc 4A, 4B, 3A, 3B. But on the back of 1A, which is the first, you know, song number 40 was 4B. And if you're not paying attention, you go from song 37 to song four and that hotline would ring in the studio from the general manager going, what are you doing? Or if you bump the turntable, that was always fun. <laughs> it, shatters, yeah. it shatters the whole image that Casey Kasem's live. Uh, so, yeah, there's a nothing's real anymore. I think we're all living in the Matrix. Those of you who remember the movie, The Matrix, this is all Matrix. It's not real. This is all a figment of your imagination. Yeah, my my first radio job was with a guy who started. He was old enough to have gone to Woodstock. It was a rock station. <laughs> He got into radio back in the day in Washington, D.C. because he wanted to be able to play his own records. And, of course, you'll find out very quickly, no, you don't play your own records. There's a guy who programs, <laughs> yep. you know, and, and, and even then, even the all request weekend. No, there's a list in front of you that says upbeat 80s, downbeat 90s. Yep. You know, you, it's not uh, the only time we ever played what people asked or didn't was a brilliant fundraiser on Thanksgiving. And people would call in and go, I want to hear Alice's Restaurant. I'll, I'll, I'll pledge $50. And then somebody else would call right behind them and go, I'll give you $100 not to play Alice's Restaurant. <laughs> and we, I'll give you 150 bucks to play Disco Duck. I'll give you $200 not to play. So we raised a ton of money. And, you know, whoever bid highest, whether it was play it or don't play it, we actually played the record. But that was the only time it was a, it was a true all-request show yeah i when i was in radio i was in top 40 radio up in rochester new york and they had all request weekends well 99.9 percent .9 of the time you're going to request a top 40 song which is going to come up in rotation anyways so the only thing we did was say here's michael jackson this is when i was back in radio here's michael jackson is going out to this person at this party at this town we're going to play it anyways but we just add the flavor now i don't mean to shatter your illusions but everything's got you think facebook and instagram algorithms radio stations have algorithms is algorithms are running the world yes and uh except on that day on thanksgiving <laughs> when we actually played you know and i, I, I did i was uh it was a rock station in raleigh it was number one when i got there i drove it to number six in 18 months <laughs> and uh I, I was i was always in trouble because i was raised as a comic not as a dj i mean I never said anything dirty on the air but i didn't have the same sort of sensibility so i'm at this i'm at this shopping mall and it's one of those recycle weekends, you know, we're taking in a bunch of recycling and, and we had Skinner tickets to give away, Leonard Skinner. And so they go, you got to come up with a creative way to, to give away the Skinner tickets. So I said, okay, uh, I'm here at North Hills Mall, uh, you know, in uh, North Raleigh and we're doing a recycle weekend and I've got a pair of tickets to the Leonard Skinner concert tomorrow. And I tell you, the first person who comes up and challenges me to a knife fight gets the tickets. Oh my goodness. Well, People came from four corner, corners of the county, <laughs> and I got in big trouble. So, you know. <laughs> 
Well, okay, enough talk about radio broadcasting. Let's go back to uh, a very somber topic, although you don't make it a very somber topic. Let's talk about suicide prevention because a lot of people who listen to my show are entrepreneurs, they're small business owners, and they don't know what to do. So they get into a situation where their business isn't taken off and they don't have anybody to turn to. They've lost all their money. And they look at, well, the only way out is suicide. And then, you know, then I'll be gone and everybody else be happy. So talk to us a little bit about if someone who's listening to this uh, episode, our conversation right now, and that is contemplating suicide, or maybe they've entertained the thoughts, speak to them directly because you've dealt with that about, you know, now's not the time to give up. Well, and you know, my third TED Talk, third, fourth TED Talk actually, was called Suicide, the Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. And the premise was that I, I got into comedy because I was married to a woman who's lovely, but, but we didn't belong together, my high school sweetheart. But you know what they say, opposite attract, she was pregnant, I wasn't. Um, the, I was doing a job, insurance, which I did not like, great business, but didn't like it. And I was not going to open mic night, which is where I thought I belonged, doing stand-up. So as a depressed person who has suicidality, I thought, you know what? If I don't do something different, I'm going to kill myself sooner rather than later. My second thought was, well, what am I waiting for? I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it doesn't work out, I can still kill myself. And the idea sprang from a survey I read of entrepreneurs. They said a third of entrepreneurs are depressed and suicidal. Now, clinicians would tell you the majority of those are suicidal because of long hours, little sleep, and unmet expectations. I believe for a lot of entrepreneurs, that's probably true. However, I believe there's a subset of entrepreneurs who are not depressed and suicidal because they are entrepreneurs. I believe they're entrepreneurs because they were depressed and suicidal. They were living a life they didn't think was theirs. They had a wonderful idea. They were not pursuing it. And they realized, look, like I did, if I don't do something different, I'm going to kill myself. Well, what the heck? I could, you know, I could pitch this life, try that life. If it works great. If it doesn't, I could still kill myself. And I bumped into a number of entertainers and entrepreneurs who actually had that same thought process. I believe Anthony Bourdain, um, he was going to Vassar, great college, good major, but he loved culinary. He always worked in restaurants. And I think he probably had third year investor thought, you know what? It's great school, great major. I'll probably get a great job. But this is not where I belong. So he bagged it all and went to the Culinary Institute figuring, you know, well, it doesn't work out. I can kill myself. Same with Kate Spade. She's the, she is the, the um, she was the manager of the accessories department in the, in the Vanity Fair magazine, I think. I mean, at top, top of the, her game in that magazine. And I think she probably was, she, she had a history of mental illness probably depressed and suicidal thinking I'm not supposed to be, you know, judging other people's fashion lines. I'm supposed to have a line of my own and thought, you know, well, I, I'll give this up. I'll try create a fashion line of my own. If it works great, if it doesn't, I'll just kill myself. I can always kill myself. So I think part of the problem for entrepreneurs is that they go into this, uh, they become entrepreneurs because they are depressed and suicidal. Now, Let's take the other subset, which is they're not depressed or suicidal going in. They just have a great idea. And they find themselves, like you said, running short of money. Um, you know, it, the pressures are building. They're on the cusp of losing everything. And they think, well, you know, got a life insurance policy. If I kill myself, my wife gets a million bucks. So she'll be broken hearted, but she won't be broke. 
that's that's where a lot of people are when they are suicidal. People think of it as a selfish act, but in fact, in that case, where let's say they've got a million dollars in life insurance, um, their family's about to lose everything because they've 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 attempted this you know this entrepreneurial venture and it's fallen flat. They see the suicidal person sees it as a selfless act. You know, I'm going to kill myself because I'm actually worth more dead than alive to my family. People feel like a burden when they are suicidal. You often hear them say, I, I feel like I'm a burden. The world would be better off without me. So they, in their mind, it's an act where they are, you know, they're going to restore their family that's safe financially because they have life insurance. The, what I teach people is how do you spot someone who is depressed and perhaps having thoughts of suicide? Because here's the deal. Eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. They want somebody to step in and go, hey, what's wrong? And interrupt. And 90% of people in the last week before they attempt give you hints, direct or indirect or behavioral hints, and they are rolling up to a suicide. So again, if you know what to look for, if you know what to look out for, and what to do and what to say at that point, then suicide is the most preventable cause of death on the planet. Let me just ask 80. you, let me just separate there, because you said if you know what to say, like I would not know what to say if I if I felt that somebody was, you know, rolling up to use your words, rolling up to suicide, what would I say to this person? Because I don't want to say the wrong thing and then have them commit suicide. And then I'm sitting here going, oh, did I do that? So uh, what would I say? What would you suggest someone to say if we recognize someone is in trouble? Have you had enough or are you hungry for more? You can find more of Mr. Productivity on TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. All you have to do is go to those apps and search for Mr. Productivity. Two words, Mr. Productivity on TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Well, and let's go back to your um, not saying the wrong thing. Let's talk about what you don't say. You don't say to somebody, let's start with depression. Let's say you suspect somebody's depressed. Here's what you don't say. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn that frown upside down. Choose joy. Have you tried fish oil? Hmm. Which I've gotten quite a few times. My uncle got on fish oil and got off all his antidepressants. I'm happy for him. Here's what you do say if you believe they're depressed. Uh, I'm here for you and mean it. I know you're not lazy, crazy, or self-absorbed. I realize that depression is a mental illness. The good news is with time and treatment, things will get better. I will take the time and I will help you get that treatment and mean it. And then here's the most difficult question. I have to practice this with myself. You have to ask them, are you having thoughts of suicide? And if you can't ask that question, you find somebody who can. And if you just have this sort of intuition, you know, I don't know why, but I have the feeling that Bob's going to attempt suicide. Go with your gut. You may have heard something that you weren't consciously aware of, but there was a, something you picked up that led you to believe, that led you to that thought. Now, let's say they, they don't say they're having thoughts of suicide. How do you spot thoughts of suicide? Well, they are um, Googling death and dying. They are um, writing death and dying. Death and dying appears as a theme in their artwork, their music, um, their poetry. They are giving away their prized possessions because they want to make sure they go to the people they want them to go to when they are gone. They get their affairs in order. They are acquiring the means to die by suicide. They bought a gun and ammunition or they're stockpiling medications. And here's a really dangerous one. It's counterintuitive. If they're depressed, it seems like ever, 
And then all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, they're happy. Mm. Happy, happy, happy. It may be because they've chosen time, place, and method, and they know that the pain is finite. That's what, that's what suicide's all about. Um, when Kate Spade and Anthony Wardain died within about 30 days of each other, all my friends and family apparently got together and said, you know, hey, Frank's suicidal. He'll know why. So they called and asked, they Facebooked and asked, why would Anthony Bourdain or Kate Spade with everything to live for want to kill themselves? Well, the thing is, my guess is, they did not want to kill themselves. I did not want to kill myself. I just wanted to end the pain. So uh, if you suspect somebody is having thoughts of suicide, depressed and having thoughts of suicide, you ask them flat out, are you having thoughts of suicide? If they say yes, your next question is, do you have a plan? If they have a plan, you say, what is your plan? If they have a plan and it's detailed, your job as a mental health first responder, as it were, is to get them on the phone with the suicide prevention lifeline, or if they're younger, get them on the, uh, get them texting to the suicide prevention text line, which is you text the word connect to 741-741 because young people are far more forthcoming in text than they are on the phone. If they won't pick up the phone, you pick up the phone, you dial the suicide prevention lifeline, the volunteer will do their best to talk the phone into the hand of the person who's in crisis. Now, the question always arises, when do you call the cops? If they're a danger to themselves, an immediate danger to themselves or other people, you have no choice but to dial 911, knowing in most states, if you do that, that's going to buy them and what they call an IDO, an involuntary detention order, and they're going to spend the next three days in a mental health facility with no shoe springs, no belt, and they're going to be pissed. But they'll be alive. I'd much rather have them upset and unfriending me on Facebook than dead. Mm-hmm. So that's that's. Uh, and here's what you don't say to somebody who is having thoughts of suicide: Oh, come on, you're being melodramatic. Nobody who talks about it ever does it. You're just looking for attention. Oh. <sighs> <laughs> That's, uh, that would be the wrong thing to say. Yeah. I, I, but just I, just say something. I mean, don't, uh, you know, better to say something and now that you know kind of what the parameters are than not say anything at all. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. You know, I'm going to drop the, the suicide prevention line. Do you happen to have that? You must have that memorized, right? Yeah. It's 800 273 Let me double check for our. I give it to you. Hang on. Uh, it's 800-273-8455, I think. But I don't want to give, give somebody the wrong number and, uh, you know, get them on Marvin Zelli. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> our lifeline. Okay. Let's see. Uh, 1-800-273-8255. 800-273-8255. Okay. And I believe 8255 is actually T-A-L-K. Okay. Yep. Oh, okay. Awesome. Well, you know, I'm really thrilled. This is going to sound, well, you'll understand what I'm going to say, but I'm really thrilled that mental health, mental health issues are coming to the forefront because I'm 54 years young. And I remember back in the seventies, eighties and nineties when I was growing up, like, shh, you don't talk about depression. Now I think it is so great that it's now coming to the forefront because you know, it's always been there. Suicide, depression, all these illnesses that have always been there. We just never talked about them. And I'm so thrilled that now they're getting their day because there are a lot of people in pain. There are a lot of people hurting. And now, because it's now become so, air quotes here, popular, I think more people are getting help. Would you agree with that or am I off base on that? Uh, it's getting better. Uh, I 
I think the reason I get hired and, and paid a great deal of money is because people don't talk about it. And I get hired to come in and simply start the conversation. Once you start the conversation and give people permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences without recrimination, then it's it catches fire. But you just need somebody to step in. And the, the thing I bring, besides the clinical information, is my personal, they call it lived experience, my near, near you know, my near pulling the trigger. So that, that I can appeal to both neuronormal people and then people who have mental illness. I get credibility with them almost immediately. So, but you are correct. It's far better than it used to be. Now, here's the, here's the problem. For men, 8 out of 10 suicides, there are 47,000 suicides in the country every year, which is one every 11 minutes. Wow. Which is uh, five every hour. Uh, and you said you're 54? Yes, sir. Uh the majority of those suicides are Caucasian men age 45-54. So you're almost safe. <laughs> well, I can tell you and my audience I have no temptation of committing suicide. I love my life, and I don't own a gun. And the strongest thing I have here at the house is Tylenol and acetaminophen. So, I mean, I, I could not kill myself. I don't think I could. I, I never even thought of it. And I'm not bragging to people. I just happen to love my life. But... I wanted to have you on the show because I know there's a lot of people are hurting and there may people be listening to our conversation and go, oh, you know what? I see this in Judy or I see this in Dave and I've never said anything. So I'm going to go and maybe watch them more or get in conversations with them. If we spur one person to save one person's life because they did something, I think this episode will be an, an astronomically success. Well, and uh, you're welcome to put my phone number in the show notes I, I give out my phone number at all my keynotes and i tell people look if you're suicidal for goodness sakes call the suicide prevention lifeline text the suicide prevention lifeline if you're just having a really bad day you know and you're mentally ill call a crazy person uh like me because we tend to be less judgmental we're not going to do what they call in the mental health business should s-h-o-u-l-d we're not going to should all over you should do this you should do that um, we're just going to do what I recommend people do. People say to me, I've got a friend who's depressed. What should I say to them? And I said, don't say anything. Just listen. Just co-sign their troubles. Just mm -hmm. be there for them. So I give you, you can put my, my cell phone number in the uh, show notes. And it's possible that our conversation today will give somebody who listened to your podcast permission to speak openly about about their depression and thoughts of suicide because that's why you know you know how it is mark when, when somebody dies by suicide you hear people say the same things i had no idea he never mm -hmm. said anything i wish i'd known i would have done anything for him uh however if we gave if we gave people permission to give voice for example i told you you ask them if they have a plan what is your plan if it's detailed it's very dangerous well let's say they have a plan it's not particularly detailed then my next question to them would be are you going to kill yourself Give them the opportunity to give voice. And I would say, no, I'm not going to kill myself. And the last question, I believe, is the most important, and it ends on a positive note. I would say to the person, okay, if you're not going to kill yourself, then tell me why not. Make them give voice. Well, my grandkids, my animals, I would never do that to my wife. 
And we've already talked about why I can't do it because I, because I'm George Bailey and it's a wonderful life and I would take all those people with me. So um, if I think if we gave people permission to give voice to their thoughts of suicide without locking them down for three days, a lot fewer people would die by suicide because they'd feel comfortable reaching out for help, not waiting for somebody to ask. Does that make sense? It does. And I got to believe with our modern technology, whether you have an iPhone or an Android, I got to believe you can tell your phone to call the uh, the the suicide prevention line. I got to believe uh, Siri and all those people that they would just call the number directly. So if you need help, folks, please tell somebody to reach out to someone uh, in the show notes or Frank's cell phone number. Reach out to someone because I believe everyone was put on this planet for a reason and you have a gift for the world. And if you take your life, you're depriving the world of your gift. So, Frank, I really appreciate you being on the show. Any final thoughts you want to leave with us? Yes. Um, and the people that work at the Suicide Prevention Lifeline would say, Mark, okay, look, don't wait until you are about to die by suicide to call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. When you begin to have those thoughts and you begin to roll up toward that, you know, call us early. Let us let us talk to you, you know, before you're on the cusp of a crisis. Because people often, often think you just call them, you know, I'm going to kill myself, so I'll call the hotline and see if they can talk me out of it. But if you're, if you're in crisis, if you're just you're thinking seriously about it, call them then. And get, and get, oh, and one last thing, there's an organization called NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, pretty much every, chap, every county in the country, National Alliance Mental Illness, they got peer counseling, family to family counseling, resources, and the best thing about NAMI is everything they do is free, Mark. Everything. Nice. Nice. Well, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, I really appreciate you being on the show. Now, we can find out more about you where? Uh, type in the words uh, The Mental Health Comedian or TheMentalHealthComedian.com because that's all tied. And the, the website's TheMentalHealthComedian.com. But if you type in The Health mental health comedian on facebook or instagram or linkedin you'll find me. okay well this has been a very mind-opening uh, conversation i really appreciate you being on the show now i and my audience are equipped to keep our eyes open and look around our loved ones and see if the signs that you shared with us on the show if we see anybody don't just say, well, I hope they get better. Say something, because how are you going to feel if you don't say something and they commit suicide and you realize to yourself, hey, I could have said something. Now they're dead. And now you are going to live with that for the rest of your life. And that's got to be a horrible feeling when you know you could have done something. Well, and one last note, there's something called um, mental health first aid. And they've got classes all the time. They're from free to about 25 bucks. It's an eight-hour course. It's a great uh, mental health 101. They cover a wide range of mental health issues. They give you a big, fat binder with all the information in it. So if you thought somebody was doing some, like, non-lethal self-harm, cutting themselves, you look it up in the binder, you'll see the symptoms and the signs and then the solution. It's called Mental Health First Aid. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Thank you so much for being on the show today. This was very helpful, and I know my listeners got benefit because I know I did, and you are a rock star, sir. Thank you, sir. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your time and attention for listening to this episode of the Mark Stucheski podcast. Hey, are you a Mark Stucheski insider yet? This is my free email newsletter where I will send you value multiple times a week. And I promise you, every time I send an email out to my insiders, it always has value. So if you want to sign up, absolutely free. Just head on over to mrproductivity.com, M-I-S-T-E-R, mrproductivity.com.